Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-hosts, LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher and LARB Editor at Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hey, Eric. Hi, this is Medea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so today we actually have an interview that both of you did with yeah. the writer John Ray, um, particularly talking about his novel Godsend, which, as you described it to me, Dea, is about a young woman who leaves California for the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan to kind of train as a member of the Taliban. A member of the Taliban. I should say, upon leaving, that is not her express purpose, but mm. that is in fact what happens in the book, and this which is, is not giving too much away, I think. That, and this that is, is all really, kind of around 9-11 in terms of time frame. Right before. Right, right before. Okay. Right. Yes. So it's this really interesting novel that follows this girl. She, I think as John says many times in the interview, really has no business surviving mm. in the kind of environment that she survives in, which is amongst men. She herself is passing herself as a man among fighters, obviously, and and killers. So it's a really fascinating book. What did you think, Kate? Yeah, I'm very intrigued. There might have been a real woman who is the basis for this story. It's not still unclear, but that's part of where John Ray got the inspiration from mm. is when he was reporting in Afghanistan and heard mentions of a woman who possibly existed, along with... An American man. American man. John Walker Lynn. Is a romance central to this movement? There, a romance with God. Mm, it is largely a romance with God. There is, in fact, a romance yeah. that is part of this book. But one of the really interesting things about it, I think, is that it gives you a sort of breakdown, a day-to-day understanding of what it might be like to live in one of these camps, train mm. uh, amongst the Taliban, which I could not have even imagined. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently most people can't, right? Isn't there like often, t- I seem to remember some news story about how people like Americans that went over there to train basically would complain about not being able to use their iPhones and the bad conditions that they faced over there. She certainly does not seem to be using an iPhone and it does seem to be bad conditions. So those, both of those things seem accurate. <laughs> okay, well, John Ray we- checks out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we just get to the interview? Let's yeah. do it. All right. Today we have John Ray in the studio with us. John Ray's latest book is called Godsend. It's a novel. But John is also the author of critically acclaimed novels, The Lost Time Accidents, Low Boy, The Right Hand of Sleep, and Canaan's Tongue. He was named one of Grant's Best of Young American Novelists in 2007, which is, I think, when we met originally. Mm, a long around, time ago. A anyway. long time ago. The recipient of the Whiting Writers Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a fellowship from the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. He now lives in Mexico City, but today he is here in Los Angeles with sure us. Sure am. Thanks, John, for coming. My pleasure. Um, so we thought we would start with you just reading a brief passage from the book. The book, again, is called Godsend. Just a, a brief little snippet so that listeners could get a feel for the novel. Should I introduce uh, what I'm reading? I think or? so. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the ideas that got me started um, in wanting to write this novel was reading an account of a a drone strike in eastern Afghanistan about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And like most accounts of drone strikes, uh, this one was from the point of view 
of the United States and of the people who were in command of these drones, I thought that it might be interesting to try to write an account of a drone strike from the point of view of the people who are actually being hit with these drones. So I'm going to read just a page um, from my novel about halfway through in which a few characters are on the ground in a small village um, when one of the very first drone strikes to have taken place in Afghanistan begins. Aiden was almost to the first of the terraced barley fields above the village when she heard Ziar behind her. The droning had dimmed and she could hear the wind in the holly oaks bordering the path and Ziar's footfalls on the gravel and his hard, insistent breathing. Though his eyes were wild, he kept his distance from her. He carried a Kalashnikov slung from his shoulder and clutched his cap in his hands so that he stood before her as bareheaded as she was herself. She'd seen fervor in Ziara's eyes before, even some unnamed species of desire, but never the helplessness she found there now. His desperation was plain in his faltering walk and in the pleading voice with which he spoke her name. Aiden, he murmured, climbing circumspectly toward her. On his lips, her name became a question, and the question seemed addressed to all the world. Can you see them? she said. I can't hear you. Can you see the planes? They aren't planes. He seemed relieved to be asked a question he could answer. Not the one I saw. Too small. No pilot inside. Missiles, then, said Aiden. No, not missiles either. There's been no explosion. Why, she said. He was within arm's reach of her now. Why hasn't there been an explosion? I can't tell you why, said Ziar. God help us. I have no idea. Aiden leaned toward him then and took his hand in hers. It felt as smooth and unresponsive as a piece of polished wood. She was opening her mouth to ask his forgiveness when the house behind him disappeared and a wall of stunned air knocked them flat and strafed them with debris. Ziar cried out, but his cry was oddly muted. Life returned to Aiden's limbs as a spasm of fear, and she lurched onto her feet just as the second shockwave hit. The mosque was gone, and its courtyard was gone, and so was the schoolhouse behind it. It seemed to her not that missiles were colliding with houses, but that houses were rising up into the clouds. It seemed more a weather pattern than a technological event. She was aware of shrieks in the intervals between the explosions and of the hail of falling matter and of men firing frantically into the clouds, but none of this distracted from the stillness. There was only stillness now, though she could see smoke raveling upward behind streaks of yellow tracer fire and two women running naked through a brightly burning field. Aiden hadn't seen a woman's legs or arms since leaving California, and the women were very beautiful, and in all that landscape, they alone seemed understandable and real. The first was running barefoot with a chemise pressed to her bosom, and the second wore nothing at all. Then the edge of the field was lifted like the corner of a carpet, and the women were gone, and Ziar was running toward her through the stillness and the smoke. Thank you.
My pleasure. Um, so, so this book is based, or not based, but came about in part because you've spent time in Afghanistan. That's right. Um, reporting there. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could, maybe we could start by talking about what kind of things you reported on when you were there and telling us how long you were there and how some of those experiences filtered into this novel. Sure. Yeah, this is really the first novel of mine that has a, a clear origin story and began at a very specific moment that I can identify. I was traveling in Afghanistan for Esquire magazine, trying and essentially failing to reach the people that I needed to reach in order to write the piece that I had been contracted to write and the reason I was there, which was a piece about a very famous warlord and member of the so-called Northern Alliance named Dostum, D-O-S-T-U-M, who was known for many things, including his extreme ruthlessness and brutality. So I was trying to get to him and to specifically get to parts of the country in which his sons were sort of scattered. This was at a time when the situation between the federal government and the Taliban was still rather sketchy. So I wasn't able to get to the parts of Afghanistan that I needed to get to. And so we changed our tack slightly. I was traveling with a man who worked as what is called a fixer, uh, this man named Noor, whose job it was essentially to translate for me, give me advice on, on where to go and, and, and to keep me from harm. And we decided that we would shift to the attempt to find people who had known and interacted with someone named John Walker Lind, who was an American teenager who converted to Islam and left the United States in the year 2000 and ended up after a long series of experiences in Pakistan and Afghanistan fighting in the army of the Taliban. Um, He became infamous right after 9-11 when he was captured as the so-called American Taliban. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were trying to find people who had known him or uh, at the very least knew of him and could sort of tell us more about his story from an Afghan perspective as opposed to the way the story's normally been told, which is, of course, from the point of view of all the rest of us here in the United States. And we were having some luck with that. I'd been in the country for about three weeks at that point, I think. And we were interviewing an old man in a small village about an hour north of Kabul who claimed to not only have crossed paths with John Walker Lind and with his associates, um, but also to have known all sorts of other things about him. We were having a very, what seemed to us a very fruitful conversation. And at one point... My fixer, who was translating for me, also started asking some questions of his own. At one point, he asked him a question in which he referenced the American boy. And the old man said, oh, I could tell you so many stories about the American boy. Um, Everyone passes through this village and and they all talk to me. I can also tell you some stories about the American girl. Mm. And we kind of both froze and Noor and I exchanged glances. And Nora said, oh, I, th- I think you misspoke. I think you meant to say the American boy. And the old man said, absolutely not. I, I meant what I said, the American girl. Have you not heard of her? And we couldn't really believe what we were hearing, you know. And from my point of view, after spending a bit of time in Afghanistan, the idea that any American, let alone a young American, let alone a young American woman, would have found some way of adapting to that environment and um, actually contributing in, in, to whatever degree to the war effort that was happening there was just completely 
mind-boggling to me. I just, I think I've almost never been so surprised in my life. And that just changed everything for us. And we immediately started pursuing that story and really having very little luck over the remaining weeks that I had. Um, my journalist visa was only good for six weeks. And at the end of that time, through a lot of painstaking searching and, and probably some ill-advised decisions on my part as to what parts of the country we should go to and who we should try to talk to, we assembled a, a very, very small collection of evidence, much of which was, was contradictory and very little of which would have been of much use to someone writing a nonfiction book. Sort of the low point of my entire time in Afghanistan, I kind of remembered that I'm a novelist and not really a journalist, first and foremost. And that was a wonderful moment. I don't know why it took me so long to think of that. But once I started thinking of the information we'd gathered as the beginnings of a novel, rather than the kind of hopeless and impossible beginnings of a nonfiction book, the whole story just opened up for me. And I started to appreciate all the gaps in what I knew as places where a fictional story could could really take root and grow. So I think it maybe at this point we should tell listeners what the book is about. I mean, I, I think they've gathered probably as much, but um, so it is about a young woman from California, the daughter of a professor who decides to, with her friend Decker, go to Afghanistan and That's join right. the Taliban. And she, she, she joins the Taliban sort of almost not on purpose. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's quite, it's difficult to say exactly how or what the circumstances are that compel her to go. And then the rest of the novel is really her survival and the way in which she adapts. That's right. It's a very daring story to tell. <laughs> you're, you're making a face. Why are you making a face? Ooh, because I was terrified when I started it. You know, I often ask myself, why should I be the person to write this story? You know, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a woman, and there are all sorts of other reasons uh, why. I'm not even a particularly good reporter. So there were, there were long stretches of doubt that I hope made me work harder and, and kept me honest. I think at bottom, I decided to write this story because the story in a strange way had sort of found me. It certainly wasn't something that I went looking for. And what, what drew you to this idea of, I mean, you mentioned it's, it was hard to believe that a young woman could, could be out in Afghanistan. Um, in particular, what about someone, you know, going from California to another country, converting, dis disavowing maybe where they come from? That's, that's part of what I get from it is someone who is finding, you know, disgusted with their own culture and, and looking for another option. What was striking to you about the story? Well, a wonderful novelist who I really idolized and who I was, I was fortunate enough to exchange a few letters with, um, Shirley Hazard, who passed away a few years ago, very sadly, but whose writing I really value so highly, once said to me that in her artistic process, all novels begin with a question, and specifically a question that the author has no ready answer for. And in this case, that was very, very true. I'm not sure if it's always true for me and for my writing, but in this case, it was simply this, this inconceivable fact, which may, of course, simply have been apocryphal or the stuff of legend. I, I couldn't imagine 
not only how a young woman would manage to stay alive, let alone make some sort of contribution to an armed conflict that was raging on the other side of the world from her home. And I had an even harder time coming up with the why, the reason why someone would choose to do so. I have a much easier time imagining why a teenage boy might do such a thing, you know, because there are various ways in which particularly the militant branch of Islam is in some ways set up in such a way that it caters to the romantic notions of of a young man. I mean, Muhammad himself was a general and, and, and a military leader, among many other things. And I think one really senses that when reading not only the Quran, but the Hadith and, and various other Islamic texts. There's a lot of attention given to the notion of a hero in much of the literature that I read. It's a lot harder to see what might motivate a woman to pledge herself to the same type of conflict. And when I began writing the novel, it was at a time when a fairly sizable number of women were leaving their homes in Europe and to a lesser degree, the United States, to join ISIS. Hmm. So it was definitely something that I was trying to figure out at the time. And then this example of someone who had done so, purportedly done so with some success, And not only that, but done so without coming from a Muslim background. It really just kind of bewildered me and perplexed me. And I couldn't come up with an explanation for why someone would do such a thing. (laughs) Right. And that just made me want to explore it. And since I'm a novelist, writing a novel is my way of of kind of thinking through a question like that. It seemed like, um, as I was reading it, that one of the explanations that you come up with for her doing this is this intense desire that sort of hits her at various points in the book to be absent of her own body and to lose it and to get rid of it. And and she does that very early on in the book where she begins to dress like a boy and, and bind her breasts. Mm-hmm. But part of the, it seems like part of the appeal of the religious practice is this sort of lifting out of the self where she can no longer feel her body weighing her down in that way. That's true. Is that something that came to you naturally as an explanation? Was that something that occurred to you as something that might appeal to a a lost young person, potentially? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I rarely write directly about myself or my own life, but the only way that I can come to an understanding of the characters I'm writing about, of course, is to imagine myself in their situation or in the case of writing about a teenager to revisit my kind of point of view and worldview and and pathology when I was around that age. And I remember from my own adolescence, a very, very intense desire, not only to escape my sense of self and who I felt I was or how I was perceived to be, but, but in my case, it did take a very physical form of really wishing that I could escape my own body and, and, either float around the world as a beautiful ghost or inhabit someone else's body. Or, I mean, I would have taken any, any swap. And, really? um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, that was one of the ways that I came to understand the character of, of Aiden Sawyer, who's the protagonist of my novel. Can I ask how your intense desire to leave your body manifested itself when you were young? 
Um, spending a lot of time in bed under the covers, um, (laughs) (laughs) doing drugs, getting extremely drunk. Were you yourself at any point tempted into any kind of religious practice? I mean, it sounds like the opposite, maybe. Well, I come from a very, very, um, a religious household is probably the most general way of putting it. Uh, both my parents are scientists and, um, there wasn't much room for religion in my household growing up which of course made me all the more interested in religion. And I always knew if I wanted to get under my parents' skin, I could express some, some even vaguely sympathetic point of view with regard to people who um, did think of themselves as having faith. Mm-hmm. To me, the language of religion is, is, a, is a perfectly valid language. And um, I do think that religious writing and religious thinking and religious discourse can express things that maybe other forms of discourse that we have available to us in this culture cannot express. Um, I've always felt a lot of sympathy towards people who thought of themselves as as faithful in some way. Um, I don't necessarily think of myself in those terms, but I'm certainly not part of the opposite camp. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. You've been listening to a conversation with John Ray, author of Godsend. We'll return to that in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Karina Longworth in the studio with us today. Karina is the author of many books, but her latest is Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. Karina is here to recommend a book. What book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend Watch Me by Angelica Houston. This is the second of two memoirs that she published a couple years ago. The first was called A Story Lately Told, and that mostly deals with her childhood in Ireland. And that book is good. It's a little slow going, I found. It doesn't really sort of take off until she's a teenager and she becomes a model. But Watch Me like begins with her modeling career kind of at its peak. Mm-hmm. And then it goes straight from there into her like falling in love with Jack Nicholson. And then this period where she's the girlfriend of one of the most famous actors in the world. But she has not become an actress herself yet. And she's sort of like having a delayed adolescence of trying to figure out who she is and what career she's going to have. And then she becomes an Oscar-winning movie star. And so it's just a really fascinating portrait of like of a woman who was born into fame and has this really powerful man as a father, John Huston, the film director, and is very drawn to powerful male artists in her personal life. But it takes her a really long time to sort of find her own path. Is there something about Angelica Houston that compelled you to read her biography or autobiography, rather? Well, I am a big fan of her father's work Mm -hmm. and have really come to, I guess, sort of fetishize her as a fashion icon. Uh (laughs) Um, I just started seeing all these amazing photos of her in like the late 70s and early 80s, just wearing like basically menswear to go out at night with just like really dark eye makeup and big jewelry. And I was like, that's a great look. And so that was actually like one of the looks that I sort of modeled the clothes that I've been wearing on my book tour after. Oh. Um, Yeah. So that was a reason to pick up the book. And then I just found myself really, really excited reading it. That's really exciting that you're modeling your book tour clothes (laughs) around Angelica Houston in the 70s. It's a lot of like dangly clip-on earrings and like brightly colored suiting. 
Ugh, the book and the outfit. Go see them both on Karina's book tour. Okay, that sounds great. Will you tell us the author again and the title? Angelica Houston, Watch Me. That was Karina Longworth giving us a book recommendation. Thank you so much, Karina. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with John Ray, author of Godsend. Where you start the novel is interesting because we don't really get much of an explanation about why she's going. She starts off in Pakistan, but why this trip is taking place. And suddenly they're there, kind of in media res. And as a reader, we don't know that much either. Right. Um, I think it, it does seem um, from early on that she's devout, that she wants to be um, a part of something greater, something you know, greater than just average mall buying, you know, the kind of mid-level suburban life that she's leaving. Yeah. So is that, as you're writing the character, is that is that what you saw as her greatest impetus? Was there something else you discovered as you're writing the book? Oh, absolutely. I think that you always discover things as you're writing, you know. I mean, I don't remember who it was that said, some novelist or other um, said, you really only figure out how to write a novel by the time you finished it. You know, you, you really know what you're doing when you get to the last sentence of the last paragraph on the last page. I think that applies to all kinds of It probably of applies to everything in life, yeah. to be honest. I'm sure I will understand how to live one's life around, you know, my final 15 minutes on this earth. <laughs> but absolutely, I, I, it was important to me to take Aiden's sense of herself, her faith, her interest in in Islam and in God in general and in various forms of mysticism and and meditation and transcendence very, very seriously. There's no other way, I think, to write about a character. And you have to be careful as a novelist to choose characters to write about with whom you can identify, at least to some degree, no matter how different they may seem on a superficial level from you and from your own background. Well, because you were saying it's you've never written about your writing doesn't often reflect as as much your own particular circumstances as yeah. um so does that make writing easier have you come into roadblocks when you try to write a story that's too close to home oh absolutely yeah i have i have the hardest time writing about myself and it's funny because nowadays part of the publicity process when a book comes out is this moment in which the publicists and and your and your editor will encourage you to kind of dig through your own biography and write some personal essay that can be published by know, us, <laughs> published by you, for yeah. example. Um, and I'm able to do that now. It's taken me a while to get to a point where I've felt comfortable doing that, but I don't think of it in the same way, and I don't approach that type of writing in the same way that I approach writing a novel. I don't think I could ever write a memoir, I don't know, like The Year of Magical Thinking or Speak Memory or these, 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 these memoirs that are really at the highest level of the art. I'm not sure why that is, but part of it may have to do with this strong desire I had when I was Aiden's age to transcend myself and leave my body and my identity behind. I think that's what drew me to writing fiction in the first place. 
and um, it must still be with me to some degree. Well, and you must have really, I don't know if this is exactly the way to characterize it, but lost yourself at least in some capacity in the kind of research you had to do for this novel. I would assume because it is very, the dialogue is feels very specific in that there's a lot of formal exchanges between characters, a lot of um, formality in the way that they discuss almost any anything around them. There's also prayer, of course. There's the various routines that both the students follow and the fighters later in the camp. You must have really had to do a lot of work and, and sort of lose yourself in this world. That's what it felt like. As I said before, if you're really afraid of getting it wrong, yeah. it's a wonderful <laughs> motivator to, to doing your homework and to doing your research. Um, I mean, for me, all writing is to some degree fear-driven. You uh-huh. know, I've, I get excited by an idea and then I, I commit to that idea and I embark on the project. And then very shortly afterwards, I start to think, oh my God, there are so many ways I could get this wrong. I do think in some perverse masochistic way that makes me work harder and that that may yield a, a, a better end result because I'm just, I'm definitely not phoning it in because I'm just scared shitless. Yeah, <laughs> it you does know? not, it does not read yeah. like you're phoning it and feels Good. extremely, I mean, accurate. I, I, I would say accurate, but yeah. I, you know, I don't know that I just have to trust you, but it, it does feel different from the kind of dialogue and the kind of world that I know. Yeah, I just, um, this was something I encountered um, when I was writing another novel of mine called Low Boy, which was about schizophrenia. I had a protagonist who was a young schizophrenic kid. When you're writing about something, about a topic that has been so distorted and misrepresented by pop culture and also even by the most highbrow fiction, you just want so desperately not to fall into some lazy form of thinking or writing that will just add fuel to the fire that's already burning very brightly and that's kind of blinding everyone to certain realities and um god you know we live in such an islamophobic country and it only seems to be getting worse and the idea that i could write something that would distort that culture or that religion or that worldview even further which would have been very easy to do because there's so much lazy writing and and lazy thinking behind so many films and TV shows, you know, we have hugely popular, critically acclaimed TV shows like Homeland, for example, that just do so much harm. Mm -hmm. You know, Homeland may be a very cleverly constructed show and I think the premise is great and it's beautifully acted, but the way it represents Muslims is is pretty horrifying. So can I ask if there were particular, like specific things that you could name that you just wanted to completely avoid that were kind of red flags for you that would not make it on the page in terms of cliches or oh boy yeah lots name a a couple i'm just curious what Um, what they are first of all the idea that we have in this country of what jihad means you know i mean can you think of a more loaded word that in in our discourse than jihad in reality Jihad means struggle, not necessarily fight, certainly not necessarily violent struggle. It, it can mean many, many things, but for the vast majority of Muslims, and we're talking about more than a billion people on this planet, jihad is something private, personal, 
and spiritual that happens within your own mind and soul. It's really about your spiritual journey. And it was very important to me in this book that by the end of the novel, people have a, a more nuanced and a more complex understanding of what that word means, because that's a word that is invoked every day, countless times by politicians and, and, and members of the military industrial complex and even well-intentioned academics. Uh, again, in a lazy way, only to refer to armed jihad. And even armed jihad is very, very strictly described in Muslim writing as taking up arms in defense of a Muslim country or a Muslim culture. It's never an aggressive act at, directed towards non-combatants or a country at, with whom one is not at war. It can only be something done in defense to protect yourself, to protect your family. Now, that doesn't mean the word isn't distorted by various militant groups and essentially fringe elements across the world. Of course it is. Of course, people, even in the Muslim world, can use the word jihad and really what they mean is blowing something up. But oh, there, are just, there are just so many mistranslations, misperceptions, misrepresentations of a culture that is not my culture and not necessarily even the culture that I would choose for myself, but is a beautiful culture in many ways and a culture that we oversimplify to our peril. I, yeah, as I was reading the book, I, I was realizing, you know, that this is the long, I don't know if the war in Afghanistan is the longest war that the U.S. has waged, but that I am often shocked how little I've looked into the culture of this place where we've been at war for such a long time. I I seem to have some kind of block about it, but I also think it's because it isn't represented in the media in a very nuanced, um, multifaceted kind of way often. So it, but yeah. um, but I but I could feel a little bit closer to the the place reading your book. Well, even just the beauty of that place. I mean, that's the first thing that hit me, and probably the last thing that I that I thought before um, I got on the transport that took me out of Afghanistan was just how unbelievably beautiful the country is, how good the food is. You know, so many people, ranging from academics to CIA operatives told me in advance that I should really expect the worst food I've ever eaten when I, you know, before going to Afghanistan. And the food in Afghanistan is incredibly good. It's a little bit like Pakistani food, a little bit like Indian food, but also a little bit like uh, food that I've had in other parts of Central Asia. Um, A lot of rice cooked with raisins and, and milk and wonderful flatbread and delicious tea. Uh, I was really shocked because I'm someone who really cares about food. I mean, if I'm traveling, I will plan my entire trip around places that people have told me to eat. And, you know, those are just two examples. I mean, I think without exception, we tend to think of Afghanistan as the grimmest place on earth. And that is one side to the situation there. But there are people living there and there are people loving life there. And there are people who have all the nuanced and complex sort of gradations of emotion that we have when we live our lives. It's a very poor country that's really suffered an enormous amount. I mean, that nation has, or I should say that region, has been at war almost without pause now for for most of the past century. But at the same time, you know, our news cycle doesn't have a lot of room for nuance and for and for long-form descriptions of other ways of life. But a novel can do that. 
And that was really one of the things I tried to do most. I thought one of the interesting ways in which, because it is in some ways a, a war novel, one of the interesting things that I got from the book was a sense of this diffuse front. You know, I think in other war novels that one reads or you can think of Hemingway, there's there's a march to the front. You know where that front is. There, You know there's a um, some goal at the end of this. Yeah. And here there's a sense where the... I could never quite tell where the front was. Mm-hmm. And that drone attack is really one of those instances where what they're just in a village, yeah. right? How did you approach sort of writing about the, this war? Um, because as you said, it's a very long one. It's a very big one spread over many different decades and, and geographies and countries. Um, how do you even go near it? <laughs> how do you go near it? Well, my solution for that was just to focus on one very specific period of time, very few characters, not to try um, to write some grand sweeping Tolstoy-esque epic of, of the entire conflict, but just to focus on a few months in a very circumscribed location and sort of let the concrete details and the specific characters speak for a much larger conflict. When I was driving around Afghanistan with Noor, um, we were often in, in regions that were perfectly safe to travel through during the day when they were firmly in the hands of the federal government. But over and over again, we would pass through areas where it was understood by both sides. It was an official, essentially quasi-official agreement that as soon as the sun went down, these territories would revert back to the Taliban. So they were perfectly safe to travel through by daylight, but you didn't want to be caught there at night. And that very early on gave me this sense of even the notion of a front in in war, which is in some ways already an antiquated notion now in the era of drone strikes. I mean, when we send a drone in to liquidate a target, we're not paying any attention to where some more or less fictitious uh, frontlining. I mean, there is no safe place for people who have been targeted by drones. Um, there is no uh, civilian territory as opposed to military territory. These are all concepts that are completely antiquated in this day and age. You know, we'll we'll send robots to kill someone wherever we can find them, um, as was proven over and over again. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. I mean, I just went on a mini anti-drone rant. No, I, I think it does. Um, were you afraid when you were there? Yeah. Can you describe what that fear was like? For me, that fear was like a... It's funny. I, I'm i dissociating even as I try to describe what the fear was like because I was essentially dissociated for the entire stretch of my time in Afghanistan. I was able to to put my fear into sort of the next room Mm-hmm. and often I wasn't even entirely aware of it. But I do remember when my time in Afghanistan was over and uh, Noor brought me to the hotel in Kabul that I was going to be staying in for the 48 hours before my flight left, which is in and of itself a fortress. It has no windows looking out on, on the streets surrounding it. To get into the hotel, you have to pass through not one, but three security checkpoints that are just like the checkpoints you might have in an airport. And then you get into this tiny little mall 
with a pizza hut and uh, some other little shops that's in a tiny little courtyard that's covered with a very thick lead roof. Again, you don't see outside at all. I went into my room. I thought, okay, I'm going to take a little nap now. I have all these things I'd still like to do in Kabul before I leave. And then I slept for about 34 hours straight. Oh my God. It was incredible. I've never, I mean, it was literally as though I'd been drugged, but it was just all the tension that had, had been accruing in my body over the course of all those weeks was suddenly gone. And mm-hmm. I, I really felt like I was hibernating. So I almost missed my flight. Wow. Did you leave your room I, at all during that period of time? I got some pizza at the Pizza yeah. Hut. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that, without giving anything away in terms of how the novel ends and where it ends, something that struck me is that you you end on this note of the unseen. Mm-hmm. That the way to survive is by being unseen in some capacity. And in, in many ways, she is, Aiden is kind of a ghost. She's kind of a ghost both in her life in California. She's no longer here and a a ghost in all of the various places that she goes in Afghanistan. That's right. Is there a way that you imagine this afterlife or the afterlife of her character? Or do you just let her go? Do you mean the afterlife in the sense of what her life might be like on earth after the book ends? Yeah. Because there's a part of me that is, that really, you know that she sort of dissipates. And, but but she's still, you know, no matter how much she tries to get rid of this very difficult body that she has that needs food, that um, remains female no matter what she sort of does to it, um, still there. Yeah. She can't disappear completely. So what what happens to her? <laughs> I think I that's the that easiest answer. I love that question because that yeah. means that on some level the book must be working if you want to know that. Well, I worry about her. <laughs> yeah, I, wor- I worry about her too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it, as a matter of fact, my two sisters were just texting me this morning to uh-huh. ask exactly what was going to happen or what had happened at the end, you know. And they had very different takes on, on oh, interesting. what Aiden's eventual fate might be. Do you have one in mind? Well, I felt very protective of Aiden throughout the entire process of writing the book. And I think, without giving too much away here, that I wanted to take care of her. And also, my conception of Aiden was as someone who was a lot tougher than she might appear. And a lot more capable and a lot more intelligent. So, she's in desperate circumstances at the end of the book. But she's not dead. Yeah. As are many of the other characters who might have appeared better suited to survival in that environment. I honestly can't tell you what happens to her after. I know, I know. It's an impossible question. I I hope she'll be okay. I do too. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. Thank you guys. It was a blast. Thank you, John. We've been talking to John Ray. He's the author of Godsend, a novel. fundraising season at LARB, and we hope we can count on your support. We know that you love great literature as much as we do. That's why LARB works with both prominent emerging authors to bring you the best new essays, reviews, and interviews on literature, art, politics, and everything in between. To support more great new writing and thought, please consider making a donation this holiday season to the Los Angeles Review of Books. 
As a nonprofit organization, we depend on the support of listeners and readers like you. And there's never been a better time to donate. A generous anonymous donor has committed to matching up to $100,000 in donations made between now and midnight December 31st. So please, if you can, consider making a donation and a contribution to support the great writing, the great shows, the great events that the Los Angeles Review of Books puts on. We are so grateful for readers and listeners like you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.